As we come to the time of our sermon this morning, our scripture lesson is in 1 Corinthians. As we come back now to our study of that letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll be reading, I'll be reading verses 9 through 13, so finishing chapter 5 this morning. When we take up again, Paul continues with the topic of church discipline here. As we read again the word of the Lord, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so this is the very word of the living God, even as we've been singing that word and reading it this morning, we read now for the purpose of our sermon, 1 Corinthians 5. Verses 9 through 13. So chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading its exposition and its hearing. Well, after commanding the Corinthian church, as we saw before, uh, to excommunicate a member who was carrying on in a notorious sin unrepentantly, and so it was only after continued unrepentance that Paul commanded that excommunication, that, that disfellowshipping of this man called a brother, Uh, Paul offers some clarification for the Corinthians, who may have been a bit confused. Uh, He had apparently addressed this matter in an earlier letter. Uh, The Lord, in his good providence, has not seen fit to preserve that letter for us, Uh, so it's not here for the church's continuing use in the Bible. But Paul refers to that letter here in verse Verses 9 and 10, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. As we delve into this passage here this morning, uh, once again, the grammar, as we've seen so many times in Paul's letters, the grammar really draws our attention to a particular verse. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? In this passage, we learn some things about the limits there of church discipline. We find that church discipline is limited to those professing faith. I hope you can follow that logic. Church discipline is for the church. It's not for those outside. And underneath that principle of church discipline being for those who are professing faith in Christ, uh, we see a few things in this passage. Number one, the church judges those inside its fellowship. And by judge here we mean 
Uh, we conduct church discipline if necessary. We're, we're examining those within our fellowship uh, so that we can see that we are walking righteously. Not, not just that we stumble in sin, but as somebody uh, engaging in an ongoing practice of unrepentant sin, that becomes a matter then for more, uh, more extensive church discipline. So the church judges those inside its fellowship. Number two, the church does not judge in that sense those outside its fellowship. So as we'll see here, we're not talking about making moral judgments about how people are behaving and calling them to repent and trust in Jesus as we preach the gospel. We're talking about uh, conducting disciplinary action. And then third, within those limitations, that it's for professing Christians and not for others, church discipline must be practiced. Of course, there are also the limits of what we would call sphere sovereignty. Often, uh, the church has authority uh, over the people in the church and uh, has authority to conduct discipline when necessary. But our authority uh, doesn't extend to having the power of the sword, which the state has, the civil magistrate has, and not the church. So the church has the authority to excommunicate, not to execute. The church has the authority to bar someone from the Lord's table, but not put them behind bars. Right? We, we don't have that kind of authority. But that's not our topic for today. When we're talking here about the limits of church discipline, we're talking about who it's for. And that it must be practiced in regard to who it's for. So let's begin with the main point of this passage. Church discipline is limited to those professing faith in Christ. They're professing Christian faith. Again, in verse 12, Paul writes, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Now, in the next chapter, Paul will tell us that Christians do make judgments. In fact, Christians will judge the world and even angels. So certainly Christians have, some, in some sense, judge those outside. And we've already seen that Christians need to discern by the fruit someone is bearing whether that person is a Christian or not. And so we make judgments in that sense. That's not what Paul's talking about here, not making judgments. He's talking here about judging in the sense of conducting disciplinary action. He's talking about the matter of church discipline. He's talking about judgment in the sense of passing judgment on sin, a sentence, a consequence for sin. We have no authority to bring consequences as the church upon people who are outside of the church for their sins. Now, the civil magistrate does have that authority. He's telling the Corinthian churches that they are to excommunicate a professing Christian in this context who is living a lifestyle of continuous, ongoing sin. He's living as if he's not a Christian. And notice what he says at the beginning of verse 11. The discipline he's advocating is for anyone named a brother, he says, who is engaging ongoingly in a sin and refusing to repent. Anyone named a brother, that's the the limitation here. A brother or sister in Christ, in other words, a professing Christian. Church discipline is for professing Christians. Sometimes it will be that we must collectively say, as a group of Christians, as a church, as a, a a local body or as a, a denominational body, well, that group over there is calling itself a church, calling itself Christian, but it's actually condoning or even promoting wickedness 
And so we see that it's missing marks of the church. It's not preaching the true gospel or it's, it's, uh, it's actually uh, failing to conduct discipline where necessary. And so we can't actually have fellowship with them as if they were really Christians. We have to say that's not really a church. Uh, this morning we were talking in uh, Sabbath school. We uh, read in the Westminster Confession about those churches which have become so corrupt that they are, as, as the Westminster Confession says, synagogues of Satan. Uh, we could name a few names. My former denomination would be one of them, the Presbyterian Church USA, which I don't think preaches the true gospel anymore or conducts church discipline. Uh, similarly, uh, the Episcopal Church and the Evangelical Lutheran Church and the United Church of Christ. These are churches that used to proclaim the true gospel and conduct church discipline, but we can't say any longer that they do. Uh, we see that uh, these are uh, churches that have, in some case, embraced a wicked practice, uh, so-called gay marriage, for example, and refuse to name these things for the sins that they are. Uh, well, now you're not actually conducting church biblical church discipline, and so you're not really a church. And of course, you'll also find that those those denominations will tolerate preaching of other gospels as well. In such cases, we have to consider such organizations uh, to be not really a church at all, whatever happens to be on the sign out front. They've fallen away from the Christian faith, and uh, there may still be Christians among them, but as a body, they have fallen away, and we have to have uh, no uh, organizational fellowship with them. But more ordinarily, however, we're going to be dealing with individual members when we're talking about church discipline. We're talking about individual members of a local church uh, who have fallen into a habit of ongoing sin and are not repenting. Uh, So most often it's going to be that a local church is disciplining a brother or sister who uh, is uh, on its own role. Uh, Once in a while it will be appropriate perhaps for the elders of a local church publicly to call someone from another congregation to repent. Sadly, in our day, we see a rise of people who aren't in a congregation, right? People uh, this engage in this, frankly, wicked practice of refusing to become members of any particular church. And this is usually a sign of a rebellious spirit, uh, arrogance, and avoidance of uh, being held accountable in any meaningful and biblical sense. Uh, Christians need to call that out. Uh, for the sin that it is, and so elders might need to issue some kind of rebuke once in a while for somebody who's not even on their church rolls. But most of the time, the local church, through its elders, will be disciplining those who have professed faith in Christ and who are on the role of that particular church. This kind of discipline is not for those who are outside of the church. The church can and must call the culture to repent. So that's not part of this limitation here. We have a mandate from Christ himself. We have a mandate from God to expose the sinfulness of the world around us. This is often spoken of being prophetic because the prophets in the Old Testament so often called out the sins of the culture around them. Uh, We're to proclaim the the Lord's command to repent and trust in Jesus Christ, we're supposed to do that to the whole world around us. You know, the great parable that Jesus uses for the preaching of the gospel is, is the parable of the sower, and that sower is not a good farmer. He's not just 
just planting the seeds where he's already plowed. He's throwing the he's throwing the seed everywhere. Because you and I don't know where the fertile ground is in someone's heart. We don't know whose heart is prepared by the Holy Spirit for it. So we scatter the seed of the gospel everywhere. Uh, there's no limitation on that. We're supposed to preach the gospel everywhere. But we have no authority to discipline unbelievers for their sins in terms of talking about the church. The church does not have authority to discipline unbelievers for their sins. In verse 13, Paul says, that's for God to do. But those who are outside, God judges, he says. In Romans 13, for example, we see that the Lord does this in part through the civil government here on earth to whom he has given the power of the sword to punish evil and reward good. Ultimately, of course, the Lord will judge all the living and the dead directly. Those who are not in Christ will receive the due penalty for their sins, while those in Christ will be rescued from the penalty for their sins since Jesus has already paid that penalty. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them and I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened which was or which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That judgment is God's job. That's what Paul says here in verse 13. That's Paul's job. But those who are outside God judges. Excuse me, that's God's job. I think I said that's Paul's job. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 13, that that is God's job to judge in that way. Those who are outside God judges. Until then... He has in this world entrusted the power of the sword to the civil magistrate for general order, for peace and stability, and for the promotion of societal righteousness. He has at the same time entrusted the keys of the kingdom to the church. The church has the authority to call the world to repentance, so we identify sin, and we can warn of the consequences that God will bring for sin, but we don't have the authority to bring those consequences here and now upon those who are outside of the church. We warn that failure to believe in Christ will bring the penalty of hell. And the church has the authority to discipline its own members. That's part of this power of the keys. Those who profess faith in Christ when they refuse to repent of those things which displease God and which bring disrepute on the name of Jesus Christ And on his kingdom. Church discipline is limited to those professing Christian faith. Now along with that principle and depending on it, in fact, Paul teaches three particular lessons here in this passage. Number one, the church judges those inside its fellowship. Again, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Now, by saying also there, Paul is saying, he's implying strongly, he does judge those inside. I don't also judge those outside, but I do judge those inside. So, uh, 
Christian discipline, church discipline, is for those who are in the church, and it has to be used here. The church does judge those inside its fellowship. You'll recall Paul has been gravely disappointed that the Corinthian church has failed to do this. They have not yet judged a man who is living in a wicked relationship with his own stepmother, and they should have done this. This is a public embarrassment to the church. They should have dealt with it already. And Paul asks, do you not judge those who are inside here? He says, in verse 12, what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those inside? That's a jab at the Corinthian church. They should have already judged the one who's inside doing this thing, and they haven't. He's saying, do you not do that? They've refused to judge the man, and they need to get to it. And Paul told them about how to do that in the previous uh, verses that we saw before. He told them back in verse 5 to excommunicate this wayward brother, to cast him out of their fellowship, and to treat him like he's an unbeliever. The hope is, as we saw before, that he will be convinced of his sin. He'll be convicted personally by that extreme measure and repent and be restored. So Paul says here in verse 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. So key there is named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So it's the one named a brother, a professing Christian, a member of the church, who is a notorious sinner who must receive the church's discipline. And we can note from scriptures like 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 5.17 that it's the elders in particular that have been entrusted with ruling authority in the church, and so it's their particular responsibility to carry out these higher levels of formal discipline. The church judges those inside its fellowship. Secondly, the church does not judge those outside its fellowship. And again here we're talking about judgment in terms of carrying out discipline. In verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges. Note again, this is not talking about Christians making moral judgments. Uh, used to be that maybe John 3.16 used to be people's most commonly quoted verse, the one that the world around us knew uh, the best. And it seems that in my day, the the verse that I've heard the most from unbelievers is Jesus' statement, judge not lest you be judged, and they take it out of context and don't understand what he's talking about there, saying that we'll be judged by the same measure that we judge by to a certain extent. But Jesus is not telling us that we are not to make any moral judgments about people around us and about their behavior. We're to judge all things by Scripture. So this is not talking about Christians making moral judgments about the world around us or calling sinners to repent and believe the gospel, we've been commanded to do those things. But we see in context that Paul is concerned with the question of whom we associate with. He had written a letter before he wrote this letter in which he told them not to associate with the immoral person. And he probably thought they understood the, the immoral person who says he's a Christian but isn't acting like one. 
Verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Uh, apparently, some had thought that he meant they have to then cut off all dealings with who, whosoever around them they think is engaging in this kind of sin. All the sinners around them in society. Okay, we're going to have to cut ourselves off from fellowship with them. Any kind of contact or association. Here he clarifies in verse 10, Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or with extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's presuming their understanding here of the kind of thing Jesus says in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, for example, that his disciples are to be in this world but not of this world. So he's presuming you're not of this world, you're in it, but you're not of it. So uh, we're talking about the people who are of this world. I didn't tell you to cut off all association with people of this world. You don't need to avoid contact with the known adulterer who might live next door to you. In fact, he probably really needs to hear the gospel from you. Or somebody at work, or the local hardware or grocery store who's a known sinner. You don't need to refuse to eat at a restaurant if you think its owner is an idolater. Those kinds of things are are personal judgments. If you think, well, you're supporting the idolatry by doing it, then by by all means don't go to that restaurant or whatever. But... God isn't commanding this kind of radical disassociation of the church from the culture around us. We do have a spiritual disassociation. There's something different about us. We're in the world, but not of it. So we're different than those who are of the world. But we don't have to cut off all contact with the world around us. The Corinthian Christians were living in a society rife with the kinds of sins that Paul mentions here. And when we extend the list to include, as he says here, the covetous, the extortioners, and so on, as well as the the sexually immoral and the idolaters, well, we get Paul's point. We would have to leave this world in order to avoid associating with everyone who does these things. Some people have tried to leave this world as far as they could go, not... We're not talking about colonizing the moon or anything, but I'm talking about they'll live in their own communities somewhere. But even if you could try to colonize the moon and make it a Christians-only moon colony, well, guess what? You'd bring sin with you. The attempt to segregate Christians from the rest of society is actually unbiblical. Paul says you're not to do that. It's, it's not possible. Whether it's individual hermits or monasteries or the Anabaptist attempt to live in separate Christian-only communities. Uh, These are just not possible, number one, and not biblical, number two. The church fails in its commission to preach the gospel to the whole world when we try to remove ourselves completely from the sinners around us. Paul's point here, though, is is to say uh, that he never intended to judge or to advocate Christians judging outsiders in that sense, saying, I'm conducting church discipline against you, we're not having any fellowship, not having any association with you. Well, no, that church discipline is for the church, right? And so the church does not judge those in that sense who are outside its fellowship. Yes, we make judgment calls about their morality, but we don't have to bring consequences upon them for their sins. That's for God to do. 
Number three, within these limits, church discipline must be practiced. We're not to judge in the sense of disciplining those who are outside of the church, but we must judge those who profess faith in Christ, those who are in the visible church. That would also include our covenant children as well. But especially those who profess faith in Christ, who are then also engaging unrepentantly in an ongoing practice of sin. So again, verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Notice a couple of things. For one thing, this is a disassociation, a disfellowshipping, that at least for a time is going to be more extreme than the way that we treat people outside of the church's fellowship. Now, once he's been excommunicated and you treat him as if he's not a Christian, well, then you can evangelize him like you would any other Christian. We talked about that before. But the sinning brother should be convicted by the fact that we might actually eat with an unbeliever, but not with him because he calls himself by the name of brother and yet brings this dishonor on the name of Christ. That should be a more extreme thing that, that wakes him up. The idea is to, is to shake someone out of that sinful stupor and get him or her to repent. Also notice these are patterns of behavior. This isn't a, a momentary stumbling. These are ongoing practices of sin, the kinds of things that Paul mentions here, not the case of a temporary fall like a a lustful thought or an isolated outburst of anger or something like that. Let's consider the examples Paul offers. He says the sexually immoral, the Greek word pornos, a a fornicator it's been translated as often. Someone who practices outside of marriage behaviors that the Lord has reserved for inside of marriage between a man and a woman. Covetous is a Greek word that means those who tend to desire or try to... to, uh, gain illicitly what is not rightfully theirs. Covetousness is idolatry, Paul says elsewhere. It leads to all manner of other sins. Then he just blatantly mentions an idolater. It's actually the Greek word from which we get our word idolatry. Idolatres. Idololatres. Someone who worships an image, or more generally, anything other than the true God. A reviler is a word that refers to a person who curses others regularly, or who shows a pattern of contempt or hatred for the things of God. A drunkard, someone who tends to get drunk, (laughs) so that's pretty plain, Extortioners, uh, the word harpax in, uh, in Greek can mean plunderers. As so people who gain money or goods, it's a term that means people who gain money or goods illicitly, uh, but typically uh, not by direct theft or robbery, but more like by blackmail, embezzlement, that kind of thing. But it can include robbery as well. These reveal ongoing practices here. We're not talking about somebody... Uh, in a momentary fit of of sin, shoplifting a small item or something like that, though that could be a question of church discipline and certainly would be a question of 
discipline from the civil magistrate. But it's something that can be quickly repented of and left behind. And someone can be restored to fellowship without ever having much of a time of church discipline for it at all, even perhaps. But we're talking here about ongoing things, things that are going to take a greater level of church discipline here. When things are seen in the church like these, when things like these are seen in the church, the one who refuses to repent has to be disciplined by the church. Eventually he will be barred from the Lord's table. Paul says we're not to eat with such a person. That would certainly include the Lord's table, but also would extend other forms of association. And in verse 13, he says, Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Those who are outside, God judges. So put away from yourselves the evil person, and God will take care of him later. It's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 17.7. We also saw a similar statement from the Israelites in regard to those wicked men of Benjamin who had done a heinous deed, and they called the tribe of Benjamin, put these evil men out from among you. Let us put them out from Israel, turn them over to us so that we can put them to death for their evil deed. So that's the power of the sword that Israel also had. So in the context of Deuteronomy 17.7 also, uh, Israel was a state with with the power of the sword as well as the power of the keys because it was the visible church. Uh, That included the death penalty. But while the church today is does not have the power of the sword and must not carry out such punishments, it must still purge from itself the evil person, Paul says. But again, the aim there is not simply to get rid of the person, as we saw before, but to bring him back, to get him to repent. But at the least, once we've purged from ourselves the evil person, he will no longer be a bad influence on the church or reflect poorly on the church when the society around uh, sees Uh, Well, that's that congregation that allows people to do X, Y, and Z. Appearing to condone the behavior. Church discipline must be practiced. So just to recap, church discipline is limited to those professing Christian faith. Therefore, the church judges those inside its fellowship. Be ready to submit to that kind of judgment and to participate in the discipline of of wayward brothers and sisters Uh, Lord willing, we don't see that very often. We maybe won't, but it certainly is the case. I can tell you as I read church reports at Presbyterian things, these things come up from time to time in our churches that the session needs to discipline someone for an ongoing, unrepentant sin. So the first thing is the church judges those inside its fellowship. Secondly, the church does not judge those outside its fellowship. You may find yourself needing to avoid fellowship with a professing Christian who is under the discipline of the church, but you need not disassociate from all sinners around you. We hold believers to a higher standard, because God does. And our discipline of an erring brother is designed to get him to repent. So until someone is called by the name of brother, you're not trying to do that. What you're trying to do uh, with the unbeliever is get them to do the general repentance at first, and trust in Jesus Christ, which you can't make them do, but only Holy Spirit can, but you can get the gospel to their ears. Our relationship with the unbeliever is quite different then. We're to preach the gospel to them and call them to repentance generally. Until they do profess that faith in Christ, we can't reasonably expect 
radical repentance. We can't expect that radical change in their lives, nor should we. It's backwards if we expect people to start behaving themselves and then believe. No, we expect them to believe in Christ, and then the Holy Spirit will be transforming them. You ought not to be surprised when lost people act like they're lost. It's when a brother acts lost that more drastic measures are to be taken because that's so grievous. And so within those limits, church discipline must be practiced. It's the command of God for the good of his people. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the discipline of the church. It's sometimes a difficult thing to do, but it is a good thing for all of us. It's a way in which you can correct individuals. So we pray that you would correct each one of us before an issue like that would arise and become a public sin for the church to deal with. We thank you for your corrective hand upon each one of us as we seek to forsake sin, and we pray that we would willingly do that. We ask that we might ever rightly use church discipline when it is necessary for our good, for your glory, as well as for the good of particularly of the one being disciplined. We pray this in the name of the one who gave the power of the keys to the church, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.